Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Do geomagnetics affect ghost phenomena? Do dogs always run away from areas of paranormal activity? Are ghosts what most people think they are? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 523rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben. You know, I'm not Ben, I'm Paul, because Ben is tied up in Boston today at school, a very important thing going on, and uh, he unfortunately will not be with us this evening, but he will be back next week. So, in any case, we don't usually have guests from the popular paranormal research community, but sometimes there is one who really tries to be a clear and original thinker, and who takes the field seriously. We believe that our guest this evening is one of these, and we do welcome calls. It's 401-766-1240. If anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. David Howard is an information technology professional holding a number of certifications, including several from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. He also was a 13-year veteran of the field of paranormal research and is the founder of Cornerstone Paranormal, based in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. To quote from David's bio, the group takes, quote, a different approach than the teams he considers simple ghost hunters and thrill seekers, spending more time being educated on a variety of topics <clears throat> than they do investigating. Their investigations yield far more information than your typical four to six hour one-time visit most teams use, unquote. Uh, the website is www.cornerstoneparanormal.com. Now, we certainly don't agree with everything on the site, but uh, it certainly has a number of, of observations that we consider refreshing, including a healthy skepticism and admonitions to educate oneself about things like meteorology and geomagnetics. Uh, we ha we're having a little bit of trouble connecting with David. Uh, we got him there, Ms. Producer? I think so. Okay. Uh, David, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, I don't hear anything. Uh, David, are you with us? Yes, I am. Uh, hmm. Okay. He is on the air, right? Hello? David? Hello? Oh, hi. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Here. Apologize for the technical difficulties this evening. That's all right. Okay, I just introduced you. Did you hear that? Or? I did not. Okay, well, just as well. No, actually, <laughs> it was very complimentary. Uh, David <laughs> Howard, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. So let's uh, let's start at the very beginning. Uh before we even get into your what is a ghost? Oh wow, that's a that's a very wide ranging uh, question, and uh, I guess depending on who you ask, a ghost could be um, a, a physical manifestation of some sort of spirit or entity, or it could be simply the the action that someone um, expects of something unseen. Uh, and in my experience. Um, I guess what I consider a ghost and what our team considers a ghost is is the result of some unseen or unknown force that we have yet to uh, explain or define. So, you know, although some people would say a ghost is an apparition that they see going down a hall, we would equally uh, equate a ghost to being something more akin to hey, why did that ball just go moving down the hall when we asked it to? Is, is the ball itself a ghost? Was it a ghostly image or a force that, that, that caused it? So, you know, for us, a ghost has a very um, wide wide definition, and I'm not sure that our team uses a ghost very often. Uh, we certainly tend to um, 
use the word paranormal or um, unknown force uh, more often than not. Okay, I, I, I rather like that. That's um, open-minded and, and uh, isn't what we often will criticize groups because they seem just riveted to the 19th century spiritualist approach to what this is, and they don't consider things from quantum physics all the way down to things you've described. Uh, so I do kind of like that. All right. Uh, have you found, um, well, I suppose, um, well, I suppose that you answered this question. I'm reading my son's question. Ben, unfortunately, couldn't be with us. He's uh, stuck in Boston. Okay. Um, assuming that um, the ghost theory is correct or, or something like that and that the paranormal exists and can be studied in the way we think it can or some people think it can uh, what methods set you apart from other groups well uh, you know I'm, I'm not sure that you booked me long enough to really uh, give you that the full weight that I would like but um, to try to be as succinct as I can um, what separates us is I think two things one is education we don't just go out and buy the cool deer that we saw on TV and try to implement it in our investigations. Our team spends more time being educated on, on a wide variety of topics that we can talk about more than we do investigating itself. And, and with that, um, you know, if I spend 30 to 50 hours in, in two or three months doing an investigation, I spend another 60 to 100 hours educating myself either prior to the investigation or post-investigation as I ran into things that I did not understand before I would define something as being haunted. Um, there's a ton of examples that we can certainly get into. And then the second thing that makes us different is that we do use dogs in our investigation, but we use them vastly different than what you've seen on TV so far. With our dogs, we simply use them as investigators and as trigger objects. And what I mean by that is we have created a vest for our dogs that houses uh, GPS units. It houses, <laughs> really? um, it houses um, video, night vision video capability. It houses a two-way radio with the microphone always keyed so that we can hear what they hear. And it also houses um, a voice recorder and EMF meters of various types. And at times, we'll send our dogs into a location alone with no humans to guide them and let them just run the location, and we will monitor their location if it's a large property via GPS. And in some cases, we've actually set up Bluetooth locators, and we monitor by Bluetooth chip on their collar where in the building that they are by using an Android tablet. And that way, we've got an idea at any given time, plus we're watching the live video feed through our tablet, so we can see what they see roughly. We can hear what they're hearing, and then we just let them go and do their thing. And at times, our dogs have come back with absolutely no usable evidence or experience that that we know that they experienced. But at other times, we've captured um, EMFs that uh, that were data logged. So we've captured an EMF spike. We've got a a good approximate location where that EMF had occurred based on the Bluetooth or GPS location at the time. All right, well, let's stop for a minute because not everybody might know. I remember I sat through an entire lecture at one of these conferences where I was a speaker, which very few people want to hear what I have to say, but they, uh, the guy went through the whole thing about equipment, and, and he didn't once define what EMF was. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a professional editor. I get to spell it out for us. The electromagnetic field 
is what EMS stands right. for, and it's generally right. believed this can be effect. And the GPS being uh, the, uh, of course, the direction, the uh, I just, I right. just the global to positioning, global positioning satellite. Right. <laughs> Thank right. you. Okay, so right. sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, it's okay, and you know, and that's, that's a good reminder for me to make sure that I don't just throw out a bunch of uh, random terms that uh, I believe everybody knows and, and certainly should not expect that. Right. And, and so Bluetooth for Bluetooth um, and uh, RFID, uh, which is radio frequency identification, we've attempted to use in the past. And what that allows us to do is we set up receivers. So your cell phone has a Bluetooth, and it will pair with your earbud so that you can use hands-free for your cell phone or even for your car. With our dog, what we've uh, accomplished is we've taken Bluetooth um, devices that are Bluetooth-capable, such as cell phones, and or just receivers like you would have in your, your car, and we put them in a location so that when our dogs walk by with a Bluetooth uh, chip in their collar, the Bluetooth will ping, basically connect to that device, showing that our dog is in that area at the time. And, and while that isn't extremely scientific, it's, at least it's a good way for us to track location and timestamp when they were in that location and roughly how long they stayed within the range of that particular Bluetooth device which is about 10 to 20 feet. So we, we get a good approximate, approximation of where our dogs are. All right. Well, let me just stop you there. You're describing a lot of equipment and, and technical stuff, and, because when I started out, you were lucky you had reel-to-reel tape recorders, right? Um, it was very seat of the pants. It didn't have any of this stuff. There are those, us being among them, who might question the need or the validity of findings about you know, using some of this equipment, particularly electromagnetic field meters, which can be affected, as you know, by just about anything. And you yourself are, are, are have, seem to have a healthy skepticism about this equipment. What is the equipment, the basic stuff, the EMF meters and all this, and how do you use it, and when do you judge that it's, that it's, it's valuable in, in judging if there's anything paranormal going on? Sure, I have to tell you that I trust my dogs and our own personal experiences far more than any of the equipment. As would I, they, yeah. The, the, the equipment for us is, is merely a guide to where might activity be happening that would lead us into further investigation. And it's the same with our dogs. If our dogs go in, you know, we know our dogs. We, we, we own them. They're our family pets. Um, we've had them for four years. We know their demeanor. We know their body language. When our dogs go into a location and all of a sudden they're reacting in a, in a way that's just not normal for them, and then the gear is somehow reacting with, with spikes on the EMS meters or with um, voice recordings all of a sudden showing up in the audio to where we hear sounds that we don't expect. Does that mean a ghost happened? No, but i tell you what, it certainly means I need to investigate that area to figure out why my dog reacted in the way that, that she did yeah. and why my equipment went off. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's time to start hypothesizing and theorizing what could it be, what stories do we know about this location, what property research has shown us to be the history of this location and or what physical manifestations are a part of that uh, location, such as natural geomagnetics or other um, environmental conditions that could cause all of these things that had no paranormal um, boundaries at all. They were just natural occurrences that we yet understand. Okay. Well, a lot of our listeners are highly educated. A lot of them are stuck in traffic right now. (laughs) How would you define geomagnetics? for the lay listener? You know, um, I won't profess to be a college professor. I do have a master's degree in business, but um, 
we have uh, had an opportunity to, to do some study with the college professors that are geologists. And for our purposes and our investigative reach, we define geomagnetics as Earth's, Earth's natural magnetism and the ability for Mother Nature to somehow modify that magnetism, whether it be by um, atmospheric conditions, uh, weather, whether it be by pressure, whether it be by changes in our atmosphere due to man-made uh, items, or maybe somebody just stuck a cell phone tower 500 feet above, you know, something that had a natural magnetism of its own, and now man's own radioactive or radiation-causing uh, equipment is somehow affecting Earth's magnetism. That, that does make sense. It's complex, but it, do, it does make a great deal of it sense, is. and you know, I've seen that. Okay. All right. Now, as far as the dogs are concerned, dogs have a reputation for, uh, first of all, being sensitive to just what you described. Um, we are, too, but we often don't know how to interpret the stimuli. Uh, the uh, geomagnetic uh, energies, things of this kind, uh, flowing to lower current and all business of, of that sort. But the dogs, uh, there are dogs and there are dogs, uh, different breeds. Like if you had a couple, of, a couple of Irish setters, they'd probably be in a heap at the bottom of the stairs or some other kinds of dogs would run away. But what sort of dogs uh, are these? That, yeah, are they all the same breed? Uh, no, we have two dogs. One is an Australian Shepherd. No kidding. Another, I used an Australian Shepherd once. Isn't that a coincidence? Yeah, our, our, our Australian, um, his, his general demeanor is pretty, he's pretty active, pretty hyper um, he loves to play. He's three years old, and uh, he loves to play. And um, what we find out of him is that when he gets into a place and starts um, reacting in a more timid uh, manner, he's, you know, right by our side and not leaving, you know, more than a foot away from us and things, um, you know, starting to cause his entire personality to change. You know, we certainly don't believe that he's being possessed or anything, you know, ridiculous like that. Sure. We, we tend to believe that there's just some whatever, some sensory thing that's causing him to be a more reserved dog compared to what he normally is. And then our second dog is a four-year-old Alaskan Husky who is quite the opposite. She's, uh, she's very chill out at home. Um, she is not a barker by any stretch. Um, you have to really force her to get her to bark and play. And um, when we go out to a location, you know, we've seen her with her, her fur rising up, and, and she gets into a very um, aggressive posture um, you know, tail tight between her legs. We've seen her turn and run from a location. Um, it's just a complete opposite of our, the Australian, which is great because we have two very different demeanor dogs that we can use as, you know, in comparisons if we go into a place. Why does one dog act this way? And in the end, are their reactions similar even though it might be different? Well, I, I found with uh, my Australian Shepherd, and that was just an experiment that I did sort of in the early to mid-90s, when this, uh, this or was it, no, I think it actually was later than that, um, early 2000s. But anyway, I had one, and, and uh, I brought uh, him with me to uh, a case that was involving, well, well, our particular approach is that we're dealing with, not with spirits, but with parallel worlds and time slips, things of that kind. And he led me in about, 15 minutes to every spot in this house and on that property that seemed to be, have some sort of nexus going on or was active or whatever you want to call it. And I was impressed. But the only thing is I only used him in two cases because, you know, he really started to get nervous and, and shaky. And I said, oh, this isn't, isn't going to be good. So your dogs sort of take this, uh, take this in stride, do they? You know, um, they generally do, yes. Now, we have had a couple of occasions where one dog seems to um, react more, I don't want to say strongly because I don't want to be misleading, but 
tends to react in such a way that, again, as our pets, you know, we're concerned for their own uh, well-being. And we've pulled them out of occasions, one or the other. And on a couple of occasions, we've pulled them both to where they both were just so, the reactions were so anti who they normally are that it got our attention so much that we really, at that point, believed, you know, the dogs sent something, even even if it was an unknown animal under the floor scaring them that we didn't know about. Something, you know, was certainly affecting them to a point that we pulled them out. So they haven't successfully completed every investigation they've been on, um, but the, Austra- the uh, Alaskan has been on about 60 investigations, and 60? she has complete, uh, she's completed about 48 of them. Wow. And the, Austra- the Australian is a little bit newer. Um, he's been on about 22 investigations, and he's completed 20 of the 22 that he's been on. So, mm-hmm. um, so we, we certainly pulled them out. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, once we get them home and um, they've been home for a day or two, you know, and, and they see they're back in their, their normal space, they seem to be okay, for lack of a better phrase. Okay. And about the humans on your in your group, how do you screen people? Uh, there is all sorts of paranormal tourism going on. It's a huge industry. And you know, back in when I started, everybody thought you were nuts, including my, the authorities in the seminary who threw me the heck out because I was doing this. But, but uh, how do you uh, how do you vet these people? How do you um, keep out the curiosity seekers and that sort of thing? Well, I got to tell you, that's probably the, uh, the the hardest thing to do out of this entire field is, is getting the, the, the thrill seekers and the, the one-timers out of the way. Um, for our team, luckily, we've been uh, lucky that uh, about six years ago, uh, we had another team that we knew very well that had dissolved, and I knew some of their members, and I was able to kind of cherry-pick them away and uh, add them to our team. But for us, it's been people that I've known most of my life or that are in my family. Um, they are you know, people that we've met along the way that, that have a good mental process of being able to think logically and, and develop theories and, and, and ways to test those theories and not just, you know, holler at every time an EMS thought meter spikes somehow and holler at the ghost. Um, of course, we've bumped into those people as well. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm pretty brutal to a point that I let people know you're just not for this field and away they go. You know, they you. might... Yeah. They, they might last an investigation or two with me, but if I see their demeanor is, is certainly you know leading itself to just being a thrill seeking type, uh, they don't last very long. What percentage of your investigations have been in houses that have people in them, as opposed to woodlands or sites or something, you know, that sort of thing? Um, you know, in, in the last, I've been in this for thirteen years, and early on, uh, a lot of my experiences and investigations were home based, but in the last four years that that percentage is, is maybe two percent. Um and the reason for that is is just the change in this field. The people that um that called us years ago didn't want to be famous because they didn't want their neighbors to think they were crack jobs, um, you know, yeah. thinking that they were haunted somehow. So it was very, you know, quiet and you and you had the people who truly thought for some reason or another that they were haunted somehow. You know, nowadays people want to be on my ghost story and these other shows. And, Tell me about and it. Yeah, they, they they just want to be famous. And in Ohio, where we're stationed, there's actually a team here that last year went on a Friday night to investigate a private home that they were invited to go. They sent four people to this home. The family was involved. You know, stayed in the house during the investigation. Later that night, about 4 a.m. Saturday morning, uh, the team leaves and says, "Yeah, we'll contact you with our findings in a few weeks." 
And the next day, which was, um, I believe, a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, the police arrived at the home of one of the investigators and arrested him and his brother because that family claimed that they stole jewelry during their investigation out of a jewelry box. Yeah. And those two were arrested for felony burglary. Now, wow. in the end, in the end, what was ultimately found was that the people who claimed the jewelry were stolen went on Monday and bought the jewelry that they claimed was stolen Friday night into Saturday morning, and then filed their insurance claim on Tuesday oh. for the stolen jewelry. And thankfully, a private investigator ultimately found that information. But these people went through four months of being labeled selling burglars and having to go through the court process and get the charges dropped. And, and when that happened, I looked at our team, I'm like, Unless we know the people personally, there's no chance we're doing a private home ever again. You know, that's a very interesting point. See, uh, the the point of the question was to discover how you deal with people who are in trouble and, you know, when you call in counselors, because I just, I cringe not only at people doing this at all when they shouldn't be, but when they undertake to counsel or assist people, especially families with children, I just—it's just—I'm just waiting for the lawsuits to begin. Never mind. Oh, yeah. Never mind the havoc these people wreak, and that—that's something that uh, you brought up an important point that uh, we haven't mentioned very often, and that's uh, there are all sorts of practical uh, dangers of the kind you've described—people accusing you of things and and, uh, yeah. and all this. So, well, and to answer the question that. that, that Obviously, you meant to ask is, you know, for us, we, we offer no service, uh, when it comes to like cleansing a house or anything like that. We actually spent six months here in Cincinnati with the, the, the Catholic Archdiocese Church. And, and let me say that I'm not a very religious person. I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm, I'm not religious by any stretch. Mm. And, um, and I could not define for myself how, you know, if someone, if I felt like someone needed, um, a cleansing, how would I define that you need a cleansing and, and what would that mean? And so I contacted the Archdiocese and uh, I was connected with a priest who had spent some time in, in Africa around um, different voodoo and shaman practitioners. And through six months of meeting with this guy once or twice a week and having discussions, just general and specific discussions, you know, it gets to the point where I said, hey, if I meet a family that feels like that they want a blessing, can I just refer them to you? Would you go visit with them? And basically take it out of our hands. And there have even been a few times where we went to someone's house and our gut instinct tells us that there's more of a mental um, aspect going on here than a paranormal aspect. And, you know, we've contacted local mental health services organizations to potentially reach out to these folks. Of course, with their permission, we don't just probably send the mental health people to their house. But, right. you know, we've never, ever undertaken the the guys that we are any kind of counselors or um, someone who is capable of cleansing a home because none of us have that experience. Well, among the complications that uh, I've run into over the years is is that you, because, because people have different, because things have changed since the 70s, but people have, have still have uh, spiritual, well, many of them are what you described, they're spiritual but not necessarily, necessarily religious. So, and very often the Roman Catholic authorities would not come in. Uh, if a person was not a Roman Catholic, you know, and I can understand that people should be, uh, I, I think, seek help probably from their own spiritual traditions. Other people, uh, many people today, have no particular spiritual tradition, so it, it can be a bit of a, of a muddle in that regard. Another thing that we found, and maybe you found the same thing, is that people 
are, when there are people present, are intimately involved in the phenomena and the nature of the phenomena. Uh, so, for example, as, as I don't know if you've run into this, but sometimes you've got uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the family is estranged from one another. They don't, the kids don't talk to the parents. That's not unusual, you know. And uh, the, the kid is involved with um, some sort of negative occult practice, you know, sacrificing lizards. You know, who knows, you know, anything. And uh, this, this can, in our experience, attract the more negative aspects of these energies we've been discussing to the point of what we believe are parasites, you know, the things that we call them parasites, and folklore calls them demons and all stuff that people can generally understand, and all sorts of complications result. Uh, also, you may have psychological issues going on that certainly we can't deal with. Um, you, you, you see what I'm getting at, so that's the reason I asked the question. Uh, but how, yeah. when you decide whether something is going on paranormally, say, in a house or in an area, do you account for the medical history of the family? Do you account for the family's activities, whether, the, you know, whether, they, are, whether they all hate each other, you know, that sort of thing? Do you account for the negative or positive aspects? I mean, how, how does that figure into your, into your reasoning? You know, for us, uh, before we even start an investigation, we, we place a video camera and a voice recorder on on our subjects of our interview, and I say subjects, we never just interview one person about uh, what they believe is happening. Uh, we interview everybody, including family members that don't even live in the in the home um, that that the homeowner told about the the activity. We we videotape it, we voice record it, and we have a hundred and forty seven question written questionnaire that we have them fill out before we even investigate minute one. We, and we ask some very tough and personal questions about yeah, as do we. mental yeah. health diagnosis, um, medications, um, life living, you know, situations like you talk about maybe a divorce or a separation, um, you know, a new abusive boyfriend living in the home, whatever. I mean, we, we get, we get personal. Um, and, you know, even for the, the very few that we still do now, you know, I, being, having been in the military, served as an army ranger for some years. Really? And I have, I have a very good ability to read body language from my interrogation days. And I will review the video of the interview sessions several times to see if I can pick up on some, you know, some truth or some, um, some lie. You know, a lot of times people are looking for the, the people that are lying in their, in their interviews. And, um, I take, often take the approaches I'm looking for those indicators that tell me these people really believe what they say, not that they're trying to deceive me. Because I'll believe that most people these days are trying to deceive you to get famous. That's and, right, yeah. And, and I'm looking for the truth. Um, so I'm looking for those tells where somebody is, is scared about what they're talking about. They're nervous. Uh, they're truly um, searching for the, the memories that they, that they think that they have of, of these experiences. And those show up on video. So when someone's telling the truth, it's just as easy to pick that out as it is a lie. Very and, true, very um, good. And, and that's the direction that we take a lot with our with that whole process of you know before we even start the investigation. Okay. Let me give people our phone numbers again. We're going to take a break in a minute here, but the phone numbers again, locally 401-766-1240 if you'd like to speak with myself or our guest, preferably our guest. And also from anywhere in the U.S. and Canada, 800-449-1240. Okay, our producer's kind of running around here, but we'll get to the break. But in the meantime, let's continue our discussion. Uh, One thing I really liked here, uh, and we had a bit of an exchange before we booked you for the show, David, 
uh, one of the things that I really liked here is um, that you spend a lot of time on cases. You don't just sort of swoop in and out. You know, you often hear these investigators speak or somebody on, the, on one of these idiot television shows, and then they'll say, oh, well, I've done thousands of cases, you know, in the past 10 years. Well, what did you do, spend like half an hour on each one? <laughs> And uh, you don't seem to be one of those at all. You said uh, you research one to three places a year, yet have over 200 days of research and hundreds of hours under our belts each year. Uh, really like that. I mean, that's you have to spend the time in order to uh, to find anything that, that, that's valuable. And uh, so, could you tell us about it? There's no such thing as a typical case, but could you tell us about a suppose a, a garden variety? You know, what, what procedures you use? You already mentioned a long questionnaire, but what what is it that you spend all this time? Uh, doing beyond the questionnaire, you know a lot of a lot of what we do, especially after the first visit. The first visit, we tend to use that visit as an experience visit. We want to go and just basically be in the location, just as the uh, business owners or homeowners are reporting, and we want to just experience that with them. So at, at that point in time, we're not really um, investigating per se along how you see on TV. And uh, so once we have those experiences and we listen to the stories that, that, that the folks have told us, then we step away for our second uh, visit and we start theorizing, well, if, if it is this, what could be happening? How can we test that, what they say is true? Um, what hypothesis, what's causing that, and how can we test that hypothesis? And we spend a good 10 to 15 hours between the first and second visit developing theories and hypotheses, and some of them are just completely outrageous, um, but we just, hey, whatever, let's test it, you know, um, let's see what happens. And other times, it's more the mundane, you know, let's put in, um, you know, at times we've gone in and even used the method of trying to trick the homeowner with exactly the same story that they told us to see if, if, if they expect it so they don't react to it and it doesn't scare them. Um, you know, they tell me that a door moves. You know, when we get in there, we'll rig a door to move. Uh, we'll rig it on purpose. Yeah. And, and we'll see, you know, we'll get their reaction because if it's something that truly scares them, they'll be scared. If it's something that they've made up or that they've, you know, not really care about, that'll show up. So our methods are both to investigate and to, and to validate. Um, but like you said, we, we go to someone's, um, business, for example, we do a lot of Historical locations, museums. Uh, we've done um, battlefields. Last year, we actually had a pass from the Park Service, and we get to spend three nights on the Gettysburg battlefield alone. Oh my goodness! Um, after hours, which yeah. uh, very rarely does that get to happen. Yeah. And uh, it's only three nights, so it's not our normal ten to fifteen visits that we would take to a location. But you know, for three uh, nights to be able to go out and spend time on the, on the battlefield of a of a place that's supposed to be highly haunted. Um, was outstanding and amazing. We'll we'll get back. We're going to take our break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our guest, David Howard. Stick with us. everybody, this is the Moose Man. Check out the groove line for the best blues, rock, funk, classic 50s, and the Beatles every single week. Tune in Thursdays from 6 to 7 p.m. That's the groove line right here on Owen. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. 
And we wanted to uh, mention several charities Ben and I have adopted. This is uh, very much present on our website, BehindTheParanormal.com, and we'll talk about them also at the end of the show. But USACares.org, wonderful group that helps uh, financially helps veterans and their families. Uh, also, Canadian Veterans Advocacy for our brothers to the north who have helped us, ancestors, of course, who have helped us in the war on terror and who have suffered a great uh, many casualties in their own right. Uh, in the uh, various uh, situations we found ourselves in, particularly Afghanistan. Uh, locally, here in Rhode Island, Builders Helping Heroes, a wonderful group that has just built a house in Burrowville, Rhode Island, for a wounded Marine who lost both his legs in Afghanistan. A uh, wonderful, warm feeling just being there with them. I was at, present at the uh, dedication of the house and throughout the project, so that was great. And also on a different vein, uh, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. We are a great supporter of them. Check them out at youthmentoring.org. And now let me take this time to thank our guest for his, vet- for his uh, service uh, as an Army Marine. Uh, I should say Army Marine, right. Uh, this has spoken like a true Coast Guardsman. Uh, or an uh, Army Ranger, certainly. So let's get back to our a very interesting conversation with David, Ho- David Howard of Cornerstone Paranormal. And, uh, David, let's, um, let's continue talking about how you investigate things. Uh, how, how do you coordinate? We believe in, in going in. The two of us just work together. So we're very odd. We're voices in the wilderness. But just the two of us kind of go in. We don't, don't usually bring uh, physicists or soil engineers or anything until later on in a case, uh, if, if we bring them in at all, which depends, you know, because we, we agree with you on the geomagnetic staying high to the water table, water table and all this business. So, um, but how do you yourself coordinate your investigations with your personnel? How many people will come in at a time? Yeah, that, that's a lot of that varies on the, on the location itself, the pure size. Um, you know, we've, someplace like a Gettysburg battlefield, uh, you know, we had t- 10 members and all 10 of us were there because we were spread out all over the place, uh, you know, having to stay in contact by two-way radio. Um, you know, a smaller location, we would take um, two to three of us just, again, depending on what theories we were going to try to test that day. You know, our biggest um, coordination problem is usually getting into a location the multiple times that we want to be there. And we don't always want to go at nighttime. I mean, we go during the day. We want to test theories of, Hey, if it happens at 2 o'clock in the morning, does it happen at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Will it happen at 8 a.m., whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we, we come up with so many different theories. We take a lot of times the composition of our team. Will, uh, will things happen more if there are dominant male type of energies or even reserved male type of energies, dominant females or reserved females, a mixture? So we'll, you know, we change the composition of the team itself. And then we start bringing in those folks who, um, you know, depending again on the on the location and what we think, we we have a, a National Weather Service uh, weatherman here in our region who has accompanied us before and help us to take different atmospheric measurements to make sure that um, that somehow the equipment isn't fully or not the equipment, I'm sorry, but the weather and atmosphere isn't fooling our bodies. You know, many of us know that you can be affected, you know, inner ear issues, things like that can cause you to be off balance to where you think that um, something has happened to you. So in the home, um, you might think, you know, you can be in a, an uneven floor with an inner ear issue and you, you think that all of a sudden you're, you know, something's moved or something has happened and, and it's not paranormal. There's just so many physiological or um, atmospheric type of conditions that could apply. Mm-hmm. Even building materials can start causing problems and 
we've had to spend time educating ourselves there. So that's right. the actual process for us to, to coordinate an investigation sometimes is the hardest part of the whole thing. Um, you know, trying to get the, the right people, the right composition of people, the right mentality, the right um, theories to put in place. Um, that, that's probably the hardest part of all of it for okay. us. Uh, I'm sure a lot of okay. multiple visits. No, no, very, very true. Uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering: uh, Did you Gettysburg is considered, you know, with all due respect, is considered uh, a central location for all this business? Did you find anything interesting when you were there for your three days? Gettysburg was probably the single. Uh, we, we've been to a lot of places, and uh, the, the the single most awe-inspiring place that I've ever investigated in 13 years was the three nights we spent in Gettysburg. Yeah, um, we had. Of the ability to observe with our own eyes in the Devil's Den area flashes of light that would have mimicked a firefight mm-hmm. on both sides of where the different soldiers would have been in that area during the battle. Yeah, I know. I know uh, where it is. Yeah. Yeah, we we experienced the smell of campfire wood smoke um, that would, you know, in our minds, mimic the. The, you know, the soldiers camping and cooking at nighttime. Um, we heard what we were certain were voices and the, the clinking metallic sounds of soldiers with all their gear, you know, walking and marching through the area. Um, it, it just, these were things that we needed no equipment to experience. We just had to be there to see them and hear them for ourselves. And at that point, you know, the, the doubts that you might have had were clearly erased, at least for us. Um, it was it was very humbling to know that we've seeked things so much um, in our lives as paranormal investigators to, to seek a proof that I can't prove to you that any of that stuff happened that night, but I can tell you that um, if I never investigate again, I've, I've experienced enough just by going three days to Gettysburg. Wow, that's powerful. Anyone who's even visited the place comes away there's just it's like no other place i've ever been you know and it's uh, i know what you mean and i hope other at least people will at least visit it it's a tremendous national treasure and a tremendous a site of tremendous uh tragedy as well so that's very interesting certainly uh one of the um uh more interesting uh situations too is 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 that how what what conclusions you may have come to about what you were actually experiencing what one of the things and i i've, I've been criticized for giving my resume all the time but what my, my first case in 1971 had to do with a it wasn't a battlefield but it was a place from the 18th century 19th century uh where there had been an abandoned uh, settlement there and the people had lived and the farmers and things and it turned out later on i'm i'm uh, related to the people so that maybe that was part of the experience i don't know cousins they were and uh, they were uh, the sounds of farm life and then as you described you know events that didn't seem ghostly at all but seemed to be more to do with time than with death you know if you know what i mean and uh, that's when i started to wonder are there quote spirits of ox cart wheels that we heard or metal farm implements i mean is is it more quantum physics with parallel physical universes that have places where they intersect in areas of tremendous uh, geomagnetic or geotechnic or electromagnetic uh, conjunctions or, or whatever you want to call it, or is it the old time idea that these are ghosts? I mean, what, what say you? You know, I've um, 
I, I leave open all all of those possibilities. After my experiences in Gettysburg, I would say that the possibility that a, a parallel shift or time uh, continuum, whatever word is appropriate there, um, it, it certainly seems possible. Um, it, you certainly don't expect a, a aluminum, metal, steel, and to have a spirit of itself. So you would not expect the, the metallic um, noises that we heard to come from a ghostly uh, ca- uh, canteen. So it, is it that, that, that the parallel time exists and that we're, we're simply catching a, a portion of what, what's really going on um, in, a, in a parallel time, or are we catching that, that ghost who is wearing um, his uniform and his things? You know, who, who knows? At this yeah. point, for me to... For me to put a you know a specific definition on it would be you know out of my character to do so, but it certainly prompts me to know that there's more to research and there's more to investigate, and that's you know where our team's education pieces really you know harken for us to to continue down those paths. We spend like I said, we spend so much of our own time and money becoming educated and developing partnerships with people who are smarter than us in certain areas of, uh, of life and, and the universe that, you know, we try to, to partner with them as much as possible and, mm-hmm. and really raise our awareness, um, testing theories and things like that to, to see what's, what's, what is silly, you know, and I, and I yeah. feel people have a lot of silly theories. Um, the, the best of which that the, I love to point out is when somebody has a, uh, an EMF meter of some sort and the meter starts going off, all of a sudden there's a ghost there. But then they, they told me 20 minutes later, or maybe they told me previously, that the energies or the, the spirits will draw the energy from the atmosphere around, or even your life energy or your batteries from your devices. They draw that energy to manifest, manifest themselves. Well, that's two very different um, opinions about how things work. If they're drawing energy out, your EMS meter should be going down, not up. Um, if, if they are expelling that energy to manifest themselves, then your meter should go up. So you should see, of course, if, if your beliefs are true about how um, spirits or whatever can manifest, then you should see correlating um, action. You should see the energy drop, and then you should see it expel. If it only expelled, where did they get, to, where did they get their energy from? You know, so we test those types of theories uh, as best as we can. And, you know, it, it's hard to define how we test them, but, you know, we've taken the opportunity to have negative and positive ion generators to see what happens to the atmosphere around us when energy is somehow displaced. Either you're draining energy from the natural surroundings or you're adding energy to it and and making those changes. What happens to your equipment when that happens? Do you tend to get more what people believe are those ghostly sensations or, you know, so is it physiological reactions to atmosphere and, and we try to test all of that and we try to blow away these theories that the paranormal teams have these days that they throw out willy-nilly without any real thought about what those theories mean mm. one of the big um i suppose forms of evidence that the, that most people believe in are evps or electronic voice phenomena uh, something that I kind of take with a pillar of salt at times, and Ben does too, because he's he's a sound expert. He, he's a senior in college. That's what his major is. What? Um, how do you use 
EVPs, and how seriously do you take them, or does it depend on the circumstances? You know, um, we do use EVP um, um, methodology in our investigations. The how serious part, though, it, it does depend. We certainly um, develop a, a long list of questions and methods to ask those questions. Um, and then based on the question, is there a specific answer to a question that's relevant to the situation? That's when we get our attention. If I ask who's with me, and all of a sudden I, hear, I think I hear the word apple, um, I don't think an apple just answered me. So, you know, I don't take that seriously. Um, but we've also taken the approach of, where we people say, well, we can't hear them. That's why we catch them on audio. The, the equipment can hear their voices. So we're thinking sometimes we ask an EVP question and nobody can hear us because we're not on their frequency. So we pre-record questions onto other audio devices and play them at different frequency levels out, and then we put another recorder in record mode and see if... The, the technology can do the work for us. And we've had some mild success in certain situations where we could not get um, any type of EVP response at all that, that, that seemed legitimate. And then we pre-record um, audio questions, you know, 10 or 15 questions in a, a 30 to 40 second um, buffer between each question. And we've heard those exact same questions being spoken out loud, get no response. And then those exact same questions being played by audio capture responses on, on the recording device. So we try different things, and we certainly don't disqualify everything uh, that's uh, audio-oriented, but um, I would say probably 90% we dismiss as either, you know, unidentified sound, um, some paradoia that, uh, you know, our ear might be matrixing on us and, and letting us hear what we want to hear, um, so we're pretty we're pretty harsh about um, audio evidence. Okay, Th there are issues on a couple of levels that have been brought up by us and others in the field. One is that um, we have a very limited human perspective on just about everything. We think of everything on our own terms, and at this point in history, our science is based pretty much entirely on materialism, 18th century materialism. However, I mean, as much as I might, might think quantum physics I mean, has blown that out of the water, that's still the basis of science. Um, are you, do you think you might be limiting yourself by using, although as open-minded as you may be, by using equipment and that are essentially based on theories that we're dealing with matter and energy that's really results from interaction with other matter and applying it to a field that might be what some say is outside of science? Do you think there's validity to using equipment like this and accepting the results at face value? Yeah, I don't know if I'm making uh, myself clear, but... but nope, I think I follow you. Um, I, I think that... Um, I think both sides of that question are, um, are completely um, valid and should be a part of every equation. I think that to dismiss it completely out of hand... And saying that that equipment is useless or not, um, not, not scientific enough, for lack of a better phrase, um, I think, I think that limits us a little bit. Um, but part of, again, of our, of our investigative process is so much about the experience because equipment as we know it, like you said, is so 
is so now, or so maybe even 18th century. Um, who knows how this stuff really, you know, if, if science was so great, we would already be able to prove God exists or doesn't exist. We'd already be able to prove that ghosts, uh, as people might believe them from TV, exist. And so far, we can't, and and that is, I think, the limitation of our our mental prowess and how much of our brain uh, function that we use currently or know how to use, and a limitation of any equipment that we're using to augment our own um, limitations as, as humans. So, so yeah, I think both. I think I think we limit ourselves by only relying on the equipment, and then I think that um, if we didn't at least consider what the equipment shows us at times would limit us to. Okay, have you ever run into a poltergeist? I mean, I mean a knockdown, drag-out one, uh, and or have you ever had physical encounters with something? Uh, I have. Uh, I'm not sure that I would say the poltergeist in, its, in, in the definition that I'm aware of. Um, the poltergeist is generally um, activity that some believe either human uh, emotion and energy can manifest activity that seems paranormal, but it's really uh, the human capability. And others believe that poltergeists are just very mischievous spirits, so I guess depending on which way you believe. Um, I'm not sure that I've ran into an extreme version of that, um, but I have certainly... Uh, I'm a big boy. I'm uh, 5'10". I'm about 230 pounds. And I've been I've, I've been hit in the back of the knee. Like if, like if your buddy comes up and kind of kicks the back of your knee and you kind of fall down on one knee because you didn't notice him coming. Well, I've been hit in the back of a knee during um, an investigation where I was being a little uh, rambunctious about my um, my questions. And uh, we were in a place that used to be a 1900 to 1905 brothel that still had the original felt wallpaper. And so mm. we were not getting much activity uh, in this place that we've been told was highly active. So I went the route of saying things like, Hey, I'm the man, and I'm not paying, and you'll do what I tell you, and uh, being a little racy. And um, all of a sudden, our EMF meters, within like a, a two- or three-minute period, we had events such as our EMF meter just so all of a sudden, which had not moved at all, started bouncing around the needle, just randomly bouncing. We had a, uh, a small magnetic compass literally start spinning at 360 degrees. Yeah, and then I had, I had what I felt like was the hardest kick to the back of the knee that actually put me down on one knee very forcefully. And um, within minutes, I you know, I had boxer pants on, but I didn't care. I pulled my pants down. I'm having my co-investigators look at the back of my knee and, and videotaping it, and there's a big red spot there that about three hours later was a very black bruise. And that's happened to me, uh, yeah. But yeah, but I've, I've certainly had, had that physical interaction but you know one of the things about us is that people get scratched they get touched they get a mark whatever we don't always interpret that as a negative you know a lot of times during investigations we're asking can you let us know about your presence can you somehow let us show us that you're here and it may very well be that that's the only method that they they being whatever this energy or spirit is is capable of producing and it could very well be how our human bodies are reacting to an environmental stimulus. So, sure, a push is one thing, but, you know, a scratch, a, a, a burning sensation, a rash, something like that could very well be not negative at all. And um, and we certainly try to keep our minds open, you know, to what that interpretation should be. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I just... Um 
tend to agree with the statement that nothing in the paranormal is what it appears to be, and I'm very nervous about any kind of communication because you don't know what you're talking to. Uh, what may appear to be human may not, and this at least, at least that's my experience. I mean, uh, what, how do you? I mean, as open-minded as you are, are I, and I'm sure you, you consider the idea that maybe these things are not what they appear to be. I mean, how, how do you ha- handle that idea? Uh, you know, again, not not being a very religious uh, person, I um, I do I do believe that there are times that that I've possibly been in the presence of something that wasn't what I thought it was, um, whether I thought it was human or whether I thought it was an animal spirit or something like that. I, I could have simply just somehow got the wrong thought in my head and started going down the wrong road unintentionally. So it's possible. Now, our team, we used to do, um, a lot of teams have to do those protection prayers um, before and after an investigation. And an odd thing happened to us about uh, two years ago. We really started doing protection prayers at every prior to every investigation. And what was happening was we were never experiencing anything during the investigation. <laughs> and, and I'm like, so so one night we're sitting around, and so the, the theory was, hey, if we're asking to be protected, maybe we are being protected, and nothing is happening around us because we're being protected. So then we shifted our focus to asking for the protection prayer after it's over with and saying, you know, asking for, you know, please don't let anything attack to us, don't follow us home, blah, blah, blah. And, and it seemed, and, and again, it may have just been us, you know, wishful thinking, but it seemed like our investigation started taking on a better tempo. Now, when I say that, of course, you know, we spend 100 hours at a location, and I might be able to aggregate 45 minutes to an hour's worth of excitement out of those 100. The other 90 hours is boring. It's not, you know, nothing really happened that had any, you know, excitement to it at all. And even the stuff that did happen that we thought was exciting, most of that we were either able to debunk or, you know, at least had to dismiss as having other possibilities. So, you know, for me, an exciting investigation is, hey, if I spent 100 hours and I got 20 minutes worth of excitement, it was worth worth yeah. being there. Well, I, I didn't mean to apply a religious meaning to that question. It was just yeah. really, a, you know, are we seeing certain things that are, we don't really understand from our human point of view that might be outside of it, but whatever. But anyway, think, we're just about well, out of you know, I, I certainly think that there are. there are. There are some things that, you know, TV has prejudiced so many of us to thinking one way, and it, you just really have to step back and consider, okay, here's what, excuse me, here's the, the beliefs that maybe I was raised with. Here's the stuff that I learned about on TV. Now, what else is there that I'm missing? And, and so I have to start embracing the what am I missing part. Okay. Well, David Howard, thank you so much. A very interesting conversation. We'll have to have you back, see if we can continue with it. Uh, but again, again, why don't you give people your website once again and uh, so they can ch- find out more about you. Sure. Uh, we are at uh, cornerstoneparanormal.com, and uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneparanormal. Um, you won't find much on our site about uh, evidence and stuff because we're not into that, you know, um, we're not trying not to be famous. We really want to find a lot of like-minded groups that uh, want to do some true research and, and spend some time doing it. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be in touch off the air. Thank you. Okay. Okay, okay a couple of announcements, folks. On Saturday, April 26th, Ben and I will speak about poltergeists uh, and my experiences with them at the New England Parafest at Crown Plaza Hotel in Nashua, New Hampshire, where some people might not like stuff with just 
such as we just said, but uh, there will be some great speakers on several paranormal subjects, including cryptozoology legend Lauren Coleman. So check that out on our website. That'll be April. We're going to do a, a drawing for tickets on our April 7th show, and uh, I've pretty much burned up the time here, so we'll just give you the final quote. We leave you with a, a thought attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, unquote. I'm Paul Eno. We'll see you next week. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.